Turn your Bibles this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're moving through this epistle written by Simon Peter, verse by verse. Being an authentic Christian, what is authentic Christianity? What does it mean to really be a follower of Jesus Christ? One of the most disheartening things for me in ministry is when I talk to people who tell me that they are Christians, and yet the longer the conversation goes on, the more vague they are in being able to tell me what they believe. The more vague they are in in being able to state why they say they're a Christian. They're half-hearted in their commitment to the Lord and to his church. They're uncertain about the basis of their salvation. Their Christianity appears to mean very little to them. And their lives are so unchanged that I often wonder whether they're really saved or not. How different that is from the apostles and the early Christians in the first century. No one could doubt their salvation. Nobody could doubt that they had been with the Lord. They knew what they believed. Their lives demonstrated it. They stood for Jesus in an unwavering faith, oftentimes in the face of the most severe persecution that people have ever faced. The whole world was literally changed by their preaching. The world was changed by their example. It was clear to anybody who saw them that their lives were founded on a bedrock of faith and truth and that they were secure in their confidence, their hope in the future. Well, I believe God hasn't changed. The Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I believe that the same uh, confidence and trust that the first century believers had is exactly what God expects of me. I think that's what he expects of all of us today. And that's going to be very evident from this particular text. 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 12 and continue through verse 18. So let's stand in honor and reverence of the reading of the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. Here's what Peter says, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decrease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses 
of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Father, now I pray that you would use this passage of scripture and these words to inspire and encourage those of us who claim the name of Jesus, that we will be confident in our faith and in the truth of your word in every day that we live. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three basic qualities of the Christian life that ought to mark the life of every believer. As you and I continue to face what I think is going to be a greater persecution, I use that word lightly because none of us in the United States have ever been persecuted for our faith, but as, as we continue to encounter unbelievers who are hostile toward the Christian faith, and as we continue to have to deal on a daily basis with church members, people who are members of somebody's church, who think they are Christians, but they're not. There are three things that the apostle tells us here that are absolutely necessary if you are going to be an authentic Christian in the world where you live, in the world where you work, in the world where you play. The first thing that he tells us you find in verses 12 and 13, and that is this. You and I must have a deep conviction of the truth. You must have a deep conviction of the truth. Now, look at what he says. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things though you know and are established in the present truth. In other words, there were probably people who went to hear Peter preach who said, why does it sound like you're preaching the same thing all the time? Why do you keep telling us the same old stuff over and over and over? Why do we keep studying the same passages of Scripture over and over and over? Why? Uh, I already know that. Move on to something else. And I've had people tell me that. Look at what he says. Yes, verse 13, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by, there's that word again, reminding you. Out beside those two verses in your Bible, write this word, doctrine. Doctrine. So many people today say to me, I'm not interested in hearing about doctrine. It's boring. Well, Peter understood that it was extremely important that every Christian ought to have a good understanding of doctrine. Those to whom he wrote were un undoubtedly acquainted with the Scripture. But Peter was convinced that they needed to continually be reminded of these things. He says, as long as I'm able, I'm going to keep reminding you. He says, I will not be negligent to remind you all the time of these things. Effective teachers, ask any school teacher, effective teachers understand the value of what? Repetition. 
Repetition. Research has shown us that within 24 hours, and I got a feeling it's less than this, within 24 hours, you forget 90% of what you hear. I think within 15 minutes after you walk out of this building, you've forgotten what you've heard many times. But research has also proven uh, to us that taking notes, writing stuff down, improves our retention by as much as three times. That's why I continually say to you, bring something to write on and something to write with. You will hear me say throughout the sermon, write this down. Why? Because I think what I have to say is so wonderful that it's just, it's, it's, it just needs to be preserved. No, it's because you and I need to be reminded we're going to forget. We're going to forget this stuff, and we need to be reminded. We need to be encouraged. So Peter says, I will not be negligent. I won't be negligent to remind you always of these things, even though you've already heard it before, even though you are already established in that present truth. So Peter obviously considered it very important that every Christian ought to have a good understanding of Christian doctrine, of the truth, of the truths that we believe. Peter would not agree with a lot of preachers who are out there today who say, it's not important to teach doctrine. All we need to do is get together and point people to Jesus. Well, listen, you can't lead somebody to Jesus without teaching some doctrine. The sinner must realize that Jesus is the Son of God. The sinner must realize that the Son of God became a man so that he could be our Savior, that he died on a cross to pay for our sins, that he rose again the third day to break the power of death. You know what that is? That's doctrine. That's just the foundation of everything that we believe. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't believe that you need a total knowledge of all the doctrines in the Bible and of all the doctrines about Christ and salvation before you can be saved. But there are some things that are absolutely essential and for us to claim or for anybody to claim that having to study doctrine is not important is just nonsense. Somebody says, well, I just believe in Jesus. If that's what you say to me, you say, well, I just believe in Jesus. Then I have every right to ask you this question. Which Jesus is it you believe in? Who is this Jesus you believe in? Tell me about him. Tell me about this Jesus. Why did he die on the cross? What was the purpose of his death? Do you believe in the resurrection? You see, there are people out there today who would just tell you that Jesus Christ was nothing more than an unfortunate carpenter of Nazareth who spoke a lot of wonderful words of wisdom. He was a great teacher, but that he ultimately, and listen, I heard this this week by a man who claims to be, a, this is a man who claims to be a preacher. Now, he also claims to be pro-choice. I don't believe you can be a pro-choice preacher. I don't believe you can be a pro-choice Christian. I believe that abortion is wrong. It is murder. And so to stand in a pulpit and ever tell somebody, I'm a preacher of the gospel, but I believe that it's okay to kill little babies, is nonsense. 
It just is. But I heard him say this. He said Jesus Christ was just an unfortunate Nazarene carpenter. He taught many wonderful things, but he was killed. Listen, here's why Jesus died, according to this preacher. He was killed because some people didn't like his stance on social justice. So when you tell me you believe in Jesus, I have every right to say, which Jesus is it you believe in? Do you believe in the one that's being taught and preached by liberals all over America today, in churches all over America today, or do you believe in the Bible, Jesus? Do you believe in the one who is the Son of God, who is in fact God himself, who took on human flesh, who died on the cross because you deserve to die on the cross for your sin, but he took it upon himself. He was in the grave three days. He bodily arose from the grave. He ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on my behalf as we speak. And one day he's coming back. Is that the Jesus you believe in? Because that's the Bible, Jesus. The need to understand the truths of the Bible does not stop just because you got saved. Learning new truths ought to be an exciting part of your life as a believer. Finding out what the Bible teaches is a wonderful experience. Learning about the intercessory ministry of our uh, Savior Jesus Christ in heaven is a thrilling experience. What a comfort! What a comfort it is to know that Jesus understands my tears, that Jesus understands my pain. How assuring it is to me to know that the Holy Spirit lives within me and is leading me and guiding me every day of my life. Doctrine is of tremendous importance. First, in reaching people with the gospel, but secondly, in producing spiritual growth among believers. Peter says that the basic truths of the Bible must be presented over and over again, even to folks who already know it. We've studied that book before. We've studied that passage before. Let's move on to something different. We need something more exciting. We need something different. We need this. No, you just need to keep doing the same thing over and over and over. It's like the preacher that got up one Sunday morning, a new preacher, preaches in a new church, and he preaches a sermon. Everybody says, oh, it's wonderful. Well, next Sunday morning he comes back, he preaches the exact same sermon that he preached the first Sunday. And they said, oh, that was pretty good, but we've heard that before. Third Sunday he comes back and he preaches the very same sermon that he's preached the other two weeks before. And finally the deacons all get together because folks are starting to say, listen, he ain't got but one, one sermon. Sounds like he's preaching the same thing over and over again. So the deacons call him to the back one day and say, listen, that first time we heard that was good. But now we've heard it four, five, six times. Don't you have anything else to say? He said, sure, i got a lot to say. If you'll start doing what I said in this first one, we'll move on to the next one. All right? So we just, that, that's why you keep, that's why we keep repetition. When you start doing what we talk about in the first one, we'll move on to something else. But you and I need to hear it over and over and over again, even though we've heard it all our lives. Listen, if you don't study the scripture on a regular basis, you will very quickly become a carnal, worldly, self-centered person. A Christian who fails to read the Bible every day, 
A Christian who seldom attends worship, finds discussion of doctoral truth uninteresting, just goes through the motion of prayer. You know what we call that? They're backsliding. They're backsliding. Whether they realize it or not, sooner or later, that individual is going to find himself or herself completely unprepared for a difficult experience that's going to come into their life. Oh, they'd say they're saved. Oh, they'll claim membership in a church. Listen, Southern Baptists have over 16, almost 17 million. Listen, there are 17 million people who identify as Southern Baptists in the United States. You know what? Today, on an average Sunday, and I got a feeling today's going to be a, a below average Sunday because it's chilly outside, but on an average Sunday, of those 17 million Southern Baptists, less than 6 million of them will attend a service in their local church. We got members on the roll of this church that the FBI couldn't find. Listen, you think that's funny and they go, that's cute. I found out this week, I won't call any names, a lady who attended this church died two years ago. We had no idea. We had no idea. Nobody called us. Nobody told us. You know how I found out? A letter that I sent to her came back, and the post office said, undeliverable. Well, yeah. She's dead. We got people like that. If you, I don't know about her because I don't want to speak ill of the dead, all right? But I know about a whole lot of other people who've got their names on the roll of this church who don't hardly ever show up for anything we do. They're not in Sunday school. They're not in worship service. They're in one but not the other. They're not studying the Bible. They're backslidden. That's why it's important. That's why Peter says, I'm just gonna keep reminding you. I'm gonna keep reminding you, as long as I'm in this tent, he says, I'm going to keep, we need to repeatedly be reminded of the great biblical truth. Don't rob yourself of the joy and the peace and the assurance that is available to you through the study of the word of God. So Peter says, first of all, you need a deep conviction of truth. The second thing he says is that you and I need to have and should have a confident hope, a confident hope. Look at verse 13. I think it is right, he says, as long as I'm in this tent, and when he says tent, he's talking about the body that he lives in. As long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Peter was well aware when he wrote this that he was going to soon be called on to die a very violent death. That's not a surprise to him. In John chapter 21, Jesus told him about it. 30 years before he wrote this book, Jesus had told him about his death. John chapter 21, Jesus said to Peter, Most assuredly I say to you, 
When you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. As Peter was writing this letter, he was convinced that the prediction that Jesus had made 30 years earlier was about to come true. He is now more than 60 years old. Uh, Nero has begun a relentless persecution of believers. And so as Peter looked into his future, he, he realized that the end is getting near. Arrest, execution is what awaited him. And so he compares his body to a tent and he said, I'm soon going to be leaving this tent behind. And my concern is not for me. I'm not concerned about myself. I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about all my Christian friends who are going to be left here. His concern was not for himself. They, uh, he, he knew where he was going. What he was concerned about are the persecution of these Christians by Nero that's going on and that was going to get worse. The unbelievers who would be threatened because of false teaching within their own circles and, and when they get threatened, they begin to persecute you. So he was filled with hope regarding his own destiny. He was completely unselfish in the love that he was going to be leaving behind for the people who would be left behind. But Peter was calm. How would you be if you knew all of a sudden that somebody from the government was going to come get you and uh, Peter ends up being crucified upside down, by the way. And you know that's what awaits you. Would you continue to share the gospel? Would you continue to preach? Peter had a, a confident hope. He wasn't worried about uh, where he was going. He, you know, we go to funerals nowadays and, and, and I do services, especially for people who I know have lived a, a, a life that was glorifying to God, I, I will often say to the family, you know what? We're not sad for them. We know where they are. I'm sad for me because I'm still here having to deal with this. We're, we're sad for, I'm not sad for the person who's died. They just put off that old tent. They've gone on to heaven. They've gone on to the reward promised them by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not sad for them. I'm sad for me having to continue to live in this. Peter was calm. He was confident. He was selflessly occupied with the needs of everybody else, even though he knew what was going to happen to himself. If you're a true believer, if you're an authentic Christian, you can be calm about the future. You can be calm even about your own death. We don't need to fear the end of life. Don't be afraid that the Russians are about to destroy the world. They're not. They can't. Oh, yes, they can, Pastor. They got all these bombs and they're going to shoot them at somebody. And, oh, Lord, they're going to shoot them at us. The Bible says that the world is not going to be destroyed by human beings. The world's going to be destroyed by God. The Russians are not God. That's why I don't, I'm not worried about global warming. Oh, my Lord. 
oh, global warming, global warming. You know what we called it when I was a kid? Weather. Let me tell you what used to happen when I was a little boy. When I was a little boy, long about May or June, it got hot every year. And the farther we went into July and August, it got hotter. But wait, some years, it was hotter than other years. It really was. And then all of a sudden, it got cold. You know why? Because the Bible says that as long as God reigns, the seasons will come just as they always have. I'm not worried about there not being a winter time next year. Oh, Lord, we're all going to burn up. Tell that to the people right now who've got two feet of snow in their front yard. They're trying to figure out how to get out the front door this morning. They'd love to have some of that global warming. Don't worry about that stuff. I don't, I don't give second thought to those things. Because I have a confident hope that one day, probably sooner than later, I'm going to lay aside this old tent and I'm headed to heaven. I'll have a perfect body. I will have perfect knowledge. I'll be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul emphatically declares the glory of Christ and his return. And he says, this is not the product of my imagination. As Peter's writing this letter, he's, he's, he's convinced that this is, going to, this is going to happen soon. Listen. Write this down. God is sovereign over all things. Maybe you need to just write it on the mirror in your bathroom. So when you get up first thing in the morning, first thing you see, when you look at that face, God is sovereign over all things. God is in control of all things. And yet, it is fear it is fear that has turned our nation into a neurotic and obsessive bunch of scaredy cats. Most people you, that you and I know are not, are not atheists. They're not out-and-out out atheists. Most people believe in some kind of, of future existence. But our world system is naturalistic. Our world system is materialistic. And so people are torn between a desire for life after death and a fear of judgment. They are torn between a feeling that how we live does matter. And, and, and then that attitude of what's the use? Because there are a lot of people out there who believe that death ends it all. You just die and that's it. Only an authentic Christian can live above that mixture of neuroses. That mixture of wishes and hopes and fears. Listen, because I believe in Jesus Christ, I know that I have a bright hope for the future. I can look at death in such a way as that I'm just shedding this old tent. The longer I'm in it, the less I like it, right? I mean, the older I get, maybe that's not, maybe it's just me. 
I wake up in the morning, I'm hurting in places I used not to hurt. Things don't work. Yesterday morning, I got up, it was cold, and my thumb didn't want to work right. Oh, Edna, my arthritis is... One day, I'm going to shed this old tent, and my thumb ain't going to bother me no more. My foot ain't going to hurt. I've got a confident hope in God because he's sovereign in all things. So Peter says, you have to have this, this confident hope. You have to have a deep conviction of truth. And then the third and final thing is, you have to have a firm basis for your faith. We sang about that. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We need a solid foundation. We need a firsthand contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and Peter makes sure right here that people understand that he's not engaging in wishful thinking, but he speaks very calmly, I think, about his approaching death. He emphatically declares that the glory of Christ and the glory of the return of Christ is not the product of his own imagination. I didn't wake up one morning and just say, you know what, I think I'll write a letter to people and say, you know what I hope happens one day? Maybe what would happen is the Lord Jesus would come back. And I'll, I'll come up with a story. We call that fiction, right? Peter said, that's not what happened. The confidence that I have, he says, that the Lord Jesus is coming back is based on what? Personal experience. And he makes reference to one of the most wonderful passages of Scripture in the Bible. He talks about the transfiguration. You remember that story. Uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, along with James and John, saw a glimpse of the glory of God. These three disciples were with Jesus as he was praying, and suddenly the Bible says in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus' appearance began to change, that his countenance was changed, his, his face changed, his garments changed. And, 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 and Luke records this having heard firsthand from Peter as he told this story, and he said, there was a shining brilliance about Jesus that we had never seen before. And then all of a sudden, if that weren't enough, we looked and there was Moses and Elijah and they're standing there in their glorified bodies and they're talking to Jesus and they're talking about his approaching death. And then a cloud came out of nowhere and came upon all of us, and we heard this voice. And the voice said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Hear him. I'd be willing to bet you anything you wanted to bet if I was a betting man. They never forgot that. They may have forgotten a lot of things that happened in their life, but I would be willing to bet you that the three of them never forgot that experience. 
what they saw, what they heard. So when Peter realizes that his days on earth are coming to an end, he begins thinking about the return of Christ. And he relived that wonderful scene on the mountain and he reminded his uh, hearers of the coming glory of the Lord. Listen, the Christian faith is not built on legends. The Christian faith is not built on hearsay. The story of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension were not, those stories were not written by people who lived hundreds of years after the event. Uh, one of the greatest things that you can study, if you're interested in this, let me know and I'll, I'll, I'll point you some resources, but archaeological discoveries in the land of Israel have proven what we knew all along, that the New Testament was written by contemporaries of the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament was written by people who actually were eyewitnesses to the things that happened. The truths set forth in the Bible were learned either directly from Jesus or as in the case of the Apostle Paul, given to him specifically as a direct ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Bible that you and I read today was completed, listen, it was completed before the end of the first century. That means a lot. Uh, we'll talk more about the reliability of New Testament documents next week, but let me just listen to this. Listen to this. There are more than 5,700 handwritten Greek manuscripts, more than 9,000 manuscripts in other languages of the New Testament. So that's what, uh, 14, almost 15,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, either in Greek or in some other language. Of those manuscripts, most of them are complete Bibles. Some of them are just pages of certain books in the Bible, then there are some that are fragments. Now, compare that to works of literature that are generally accepted to be reliable. So the oldest one of those would be the uh, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. Remember that? So the Iliad and the Odyssey. So we have 15,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Of Homer's Iliad, we have only 600 manuscripts, 640. Most of the manuscripts that we have dealing with the New Testament were written between 25 and 50 years of the event actually happening. Compare that to Homer. The earliest manuscript that we have of Homer's writings occurs 500 years after Homer. Move on to Plato. The earliest writings of Plato that we have are 1,200 years after the fact. In the New Testament, 
The longest amount of time is only 50 years. It would be like you and I writing today about the events of 9-11 because almost all of us in this room experienced it. We were firsthand, we have firsthand knowledge. Or if one of our children wrote about what we said about 9-11. That's how close to the actual events your Bible is. That's in, that, that is amazing to me. That means that the New Testament that you have, that you read, is considerably more accurate and more authentic than any other literature that we have in existence. 25 to 50 years of the, uh, within that time. So God has given you and me a solid basis for our faith. The, the, the New Testament is written by people who had seen Jesus, people who had touched Jesus, people who had listened to Jesus, people who had walked with Jesus himself. Even the enemies of the gospel today have to acknowledge that that is true. In addition to that, I know that the gospel is true because of the stories of countless people who I know who have been delivered from drugs, who have been delivered from lust, who've been delivered from alcohol, and who've been delivered from a host of other things that have happened in their life, all because of the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So the truth of the gospel is confirmed historically, it is confirmed scientifically, it is confirmed experientially. You can stake your life on it. More important than that, you can stake your eternal destiny on the truthfulness of this book. If you truly know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior this morning, you can testify that Jesus is real in your life. You ought to be able to stand up just like that and say, let me give testimony to what Jesus has done in my life. At any time anybody were to ask you, that's what the Bible says we're supposed to be able to do. At any time somebody came by and said, why are you smiling so much? Why are you so happy? What's going on? Listen, don't you know the Russians about to blow up the world? Don't you know we all about to die because of global warming? What are you so happy about, you nuts? As a matter of fact, I know something that maybe you don't know. Can I share it with you? That if you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't worry about the Russians anymore. If you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you realize this is just old tent I live in. And one day soon, I'm gonna shed this one and get a glorified body. One day soon, I'm going to leave this place, not because of the Russians, but because the Lord Jesus calls me home to be with. See, this is not my home. I don't live here. I'm just, I'm just a pilgrim. I'm a stranger. I'm an alien. Folks are always looking for aliens. Here I are. I'm an alien. That's what the Bible says about me. I'm an alien 
in this world. I don't belong here. I wasn't made for here. I was made for God's glory. I was made for eternity. So you can be deeply convinced today that what you believe is true, and you ought to be able to explain it. You ought to be able to uh, explain the basis of your faith. You ought to be able to support it with passages of Scripture. You have the joyful assurance of knowing that death is just the beginning of real life. I look at death as a graduation. Everybody else gets to have a graduation. My granddaughter called me this week and said she would be graduating from preschool. I said, my Lord, but you know what? I got it on my calendar. I'm going. I'll be right there sitting on the front row, taking pictures, hollering and hooping. Hey, we made it through preschool. One day, I'm going to graduate from this life into the next. And I'm just as sure of that as I am that you're sitting there this morning, that I'm standing here. If you don't have that assurance, if you don't have that assurance in your life today, can I just say this to you? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ. He says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You come to Jesus, and he'll save you, and he'll give you the peace you're looking for. He'll give you the confidence you're looking for. And you can leave this place today with the assurance of salvation, and you can begin at this moment to grow spiritually in your understanding of who God is and what he wants you to do in this life.